So we're continuing in the section in chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians where Paul is wanting us to understand how we respond to this great position we've been given in Christ. What does it look like to walk with the Jesus who saved us, who's chosen us, who's helped us to be seated at the right hand of the Father? How, how is it that we, having a position in Christ, can now learn to walk with Christ? What does it look like to do that? How are we transformed by that? That's what these chapters are really about. It's how we walk. And so today we're looking at what it means to walk in the light. Literally walk, as the Scripture says here, walk as children of light. What does that mean? How does that work? What does that look like? That's what we want to understand. And I have to say this metaphor of light and darkness uh, it's, it's a good metaphor, but it's kind of a, an abstract metaphor. It's kind of hard to get a grip on light or a grip on darkness. They are abstract concepts, so to speak. And so it's important for us to really understand what Paul is saying, to get a grip on what it is he's calling us to do, what, what we can expect that the Holy Spirit wants to do in us, because that's really what this stuff is about. It's about us learning to recognize the work of the Spirit in us. God's Spirit who brings us to a place where we know that we need Jesus. It's God's Spirit who brings us to a place that we know we can trust Jesus. It's God's Spirit that regenerates us, gives us new life when we cry out to Jesus to save us. And it's God's Spirit who dwells in each of us who have been born again. He dwells in us to make us like Jesus so that when we get to heaven, we get to enjoy Jesus forever. And so what this is about is us recognizing and learning to cooperate with God the Spirit, learning to be transformed by God, learning to apply the gospel to every aspect of our life. And so Paul starts off by making a statement that is incredibly profound and easy to miss. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, you were once darkness, but now are light. He didn't say, you were once in darkness and now are in light. He's not talking about your environment. He's talking about your nature. He's saying something profoundly, something very profound has taken place. Something has changed pretty radically. You were once darkness and now you've become light. And of course, when he gives the exhortation to walk, he doesn't just say walk in the light. That would be a, a good exhortation, a biblical exhortation. John says that in his epistle, in 1 John. But he says walk as children of light. And it's pretty clear here that he wants us to recognize something about our position. That we have this position as children, and by saying you were once darkness, but now are light, he's wanting us to recognize, look, we've been translated from one kingdom to another. We've been changed. And really, this is the first thing I want you to understand today about walking the children of light. It's about becoming who you are. It's not about ever gaining a position with God. It's about living from a position with God. It's about living in a relationship that's been given to you as a free gift through Jesus Christ. It's about becoming who you are. I love the fact that, you know, in this whole section, especially in chapter 5, we've seen this come up over and over again. Even though Paul took the first three chapters to lay out all this deep doctrine, all this deep theology about our position in Christ, 
He keeps coming and bringing back that theology. Remember, this is who you are in Christ. Therefore, live this way. Remember, this is what Christ has done. Therefore, live this way. He keeps bringing it back up. That's why I keep bringing it back up. Because part of walking with Jesus, part of walking as children of light is becoming who we are. It's walking from a position as children. It's like Paul saying, look, you need to remember who you used to be, and you need to remember who made you who you are now. One of the biggest mistakes we can make in in our walk with God is to stop looking to Jesus for our walk. We start looking to ourselves or maybe to other people. But the thing is, when, when, when the author of Hebrews talks about not just walking, but running the race, he says, he says clearly, doesn't he? He says, listen, we need to run the race with endurance, looking unto Jesus. Our focus needs to be on Him. He's the one who's gone before us. He's the one we're running to. He's the one who's running with us. And so it's like he wants to remember this. In fact, it's interesting. When Paul shares his own testimony in Acts chapter 26, I hope I have it here. I don't think I have it here. That's okay. In Acts chapter 26, Paul tells his own testimony. And he gives this sort of, um, is it on the screen? Oh, man, it's not on my notes. Acts 26, here's what he says. Let's all read it together with our heads cranked up like this. He says, and the Lord replied to Saul. This is the same guy who's Paul. This is before he was called Paul. He was called Saul. He says to Saul on the road to Damascus, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open up their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. And so Jesus, when he confronts Paul on the road to Damascus, he says, Paul, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to take you from darkness to light so that you can go to the Gentiles. Not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, and you can tell them, look, God has provided for you in Christ. You've been provided to come out of darkness into light. But not just a change of environment, a change of nature, because you go from being darkness to being light. Who does that for you? Jesus does. Jesus does this for us. So it's about becoming who we are. We we, we walk, become who we are from a position as children. But then he also says in verse 9, look at He says, for the fruit of the Spirit. Some of your translations say the fruit of light. There's different manuscripts say different things, but the point is really the same. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Now, whenever the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit, or if your translation says the fruit of the light, the idea is here's what God does. Here's what God produces. Fruit is produced. Here's what God produces. In other words, becoming who you are happens through the work of God in our lives. Well, let's talk about this. Let's talk about, there's Acts 26. <laughs> Let, let's talk about these words, because these words, goodness, righteousness, and truth, they're, they're words that are kind of familiar to us. Righteousness is a bit religious. We'll talk about what that might mean. But they're words that because we can think, oh yeah, okay, goodness, I think I know what goodness is, it's hard to kind of define and think about, well, what is it that God's wanting to work in us? When we talk about goodness, we're talking about something that God himself defines. God is good. Remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler who came to him and said, good teacher, what good thing must I do to be inherent eternal life? And what he just says, well, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. 
And Jesus wasn't denying that he was God. He was challenging that man's thinking about what is good. What's good? God is good. God defines goodness. But here this word for goodness is not just the idea of what goodness is. It's goodness done. It's an act of goodness. It's goodness displayed. It can be translated usefulness. It's this. It's this idea of God's uh, it's an idea of God's, the character of God being displayed for the benefit of others. That's goodness. So when, when Paul says, okay, listen, you were darkness, now you're light, walk as children of light, and he's talking about us becoming who we are as children of light, he's saying this is going to happen through the work of God, and what God wants to work in us is goodness. God wants to display through us his goodness to other people. We'll talk more about this when we get to verse 11. But he also uses this word righteousness. Now, what's righteousness? Well, righteousness is simply about really relating rightly to others. So righteousness in in a relationship with God, and there's going to be a graph you'll see now, should come up on the screen, a little arrow. It's basically righteousness is righteousness is relational. It's how we relate to others. So we relate rightly to God through faith. God says, here's how you please me. It's impossible for you to please me unless you trust me. So relate rightly to God through faith, right? We relate rightly to others through love. Now, sometimes we get this mixed up. We put our trust in people, and then what happens? We get radically disappointed. Now, we should love God too. Don't get me wrong. We should love God too. But that love expresses itself in faith. God, I trust you. I trust you enough to do what you say. And you said, if I love you, I'll keep your commandments. The love that we have for God has to flow from faith. We're not going to love God unless we truly trust that He first loves us. And so this is what He's talking about, righteousness. So there's goodness, there's righteousness, but also He says in truth, that God is working truth in us to help us to become who we are. Truth is simply this, it's communicating reality from God's perspective. Now here's what we do in our modern relativistic age, we tend to do this. We tend to say, well, I think, I believe. Now, there's a place for that, definitely a place for that. There's even wisdom for doing that when we're talking about the gospel. There's a time when you want to kind of just first state what you believe. But really what we're called to communicate, what God wants to work in us, is a confidence in what He said, so that when we say what He said, we can believe what He once said is being said. Are you following me? Not really, are you? Okay. Sounds like Dr. Seuss, doesn't it? It's communicating reality from God's perspective. What does God say about reality? What does God say about this situation? Let me give you a practical example now. What's God say about our gathering right now? From a purely materialistic standpoint, what a materialist would say, your gathering is people in a building listening to a religious speech. That's the reality, and that's as far as the reality goes. From God's perspective, here's here's reality. Reality is His people coming together in His presence to hear His Word to be made like His Son. That's His reality. That's truth. Are you following me? So the, the problem is, is sometimes we will think truth is what we, our opinion is, we, we mix up truth with opinion, or truth is what I feel, or truth is what I perceive. No, truth is what God says. 
So God's Spirit wants to work in us truth. We become who we are as God's, through the work of God's Spirit in our lives, teaching us to communicate reality from His perspective. And again, we'll talk more about that when we get to verse 12. But lastly, he says this in verse 10. It's kind of, it's, it feels a bit awkward in the New King James, to be honest, but verse 10 says, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. It's awkward because that word acceptable in English, we tend to use that like, well, it's, it's good enough. It's acceptable. It's okay. It almost means mediocre sometimes. Like, I won't get rid of this, but, you know. So, like, you, you order something at a restaurant, you ask for a steak, medium rare, that one time a year when you get to order steak, and you ask for a steak, medium rare, and it comes medium. It's a bit not quite pink enough for you, you know, but it's acceptable. And so to use that word acceptable in this context kind of misses the point. The word in Greek actually is well-pleasing. It puts a smile on his face. That's what it is. It's not like, uh, it's medium, but it's okay. It's like, mmm, this is just how I like it. It's well-pleasing. And so what Paul's saying here is, He's saying, listen, you have to find out or there's a process to learn what actually makes God smile. And listen, learning to smile about the same thing. (laughs) It's this idea of that we're becoming who we are as we learn to enjoy what God enjoys. How many of you guys have seen Chariots of Fire? If you haven't seen it, it's a classic movie, Chariots of Fire, made in the 1980s, British movie. Love that movie, great movie. It's, about, it's a, based on a true story about uh, an Olympic runner named Eric Little who was also a Christian and wouldn't run on Sundays. And one of the things that happens when he, he still feels like he, you know, he, doesn't, he won't run on Sundays, but he still wants to run for the Olympics. And his sister is a bit grieved by this because they're called to mission in China. And, and she feels like you're missing God's call. And he says to her, Jenny, Jenny. That's my best Scottish accent. I won't go farther than that. But he says to her, Jenny. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. I feel God's pleasure. He knew in doing that work that that could be as much worship to God as could be going to China with the gospel. Now, he went to China for the gospel and even died, died, guided, died in China for the gospel. But the truth is, listen, the truth is, he knew, he found out what pleased the Lord. What pleased the Lord was for him to use this world-class skill that he had for hit for God's glory. It pleased the Lord. So this is what we're talking about. And, we, and I want to make sure I'm being clear about this because we're not just talking about an experience of our joy. It is that, but it's more than that. It's not just this experience that happens to us, but it's a reality that God calls us to grow in. He calls us to grow in this kind of joy. Jesus says this in John chapter 15, when he speaks to his disciples about abiding in him, standing in that tight relationship with him, uh, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. What's the difference? What's the issue about Jesus saying my joy and your joy? Is it, is it two different joys here? No, when he says my joy, that describes what the joy is like. It quantifies it. When he says your joy, he's saying, this is what I want you to experience. In other words, he's saying, I want your joy to be the same joy that I've always experienced with my Father. Joy that is beyond understanding. 
Peter talks about this kind of joy. Listen to this, 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, There's a wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. Who will they show? They'll show you that your faith is genuine. God already knows. <laughs> show you that your faith is genuine. Your faith will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Ever thought about that? When we see Jesus face to face, we're going to be going, you're amazing, you're wonderful, we're going to be worshiping on his feet. But you know what happens before we begin to do that? He wipes away tears from her eyes, tears of regret, I think. He places a crown on his head, and he says, everyone, this is John Brown, and whom I'm well pleased. You're going, that ain't going to happen, dude. <laughs> it shouldn't happen. I don't deserve it to happen, but it's going to happen. That's what he's going to do with us as we walk with him. And then you know what I'm going to do? You know what you're going to do too? We're going to take that crown and we're going to throw it at his feet. No, you and you alone are worthy to be praised. What a beautiful picture. Now, Peter is saying, listen, staying with this one Peter, Peter is saying, there's this great joy that you have to look forward to even though now you're going through some really tough times. But look what he says, listen. He says, you love him, that's Jesus, even though you've never seen him. And though you do not see him now, you trust him. And here's what happens as you trust him. You rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. So listen, this is, this is how this is connected to what Paul's saying in Ephesians. Paul is saying, listen, part of walking in the light is you becoming who you are, and part of becoming who you are is you learning to enjoy what God enjoys. You know what God has always enjoyed for eternity past? Himself. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you've got to learn to enjoy yourself. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying you've got to learn to enjoy God. The greatest thing God can give us is himself. Which is why, listen, this is, this is why we frustrate our own Christian experience when we're always trying to go through God to get what we really want. Oh God, please just bless me. Please just give me a better marriage, a better family, a better job, a better house, a better car, a better church, whatever the case might be. And we're trying to go through God to get what we really want. And God's going, don't you know? I have you right where I want you to be so that you can have me. You can learn to have joy in me. This is becoming who we are. This is where God wants us to, what God wants us to grow into. We're finding out what pleases the Lord. Lord, what pleases you? What pleases the Lord is when I enjoy what he enjoys. Now, there's a negative side to this. I'm going to get into this now because it's important for us to recognize that walking in children of light, it's not just about us becoming who we are. It's also helping other people to see. That's the purpose of light. Look what he says in verse 11. Paul says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Now, the word for fellowship there, it's, that. It's, it's not the normal word koinonia. It's a word that actually means don't do the unfruitful works of darkness. Don't be a co-participant. Similar to what he had said in verse 7, what we looked at last week. A co-partaker. Don't, don't do that. Don't, don't actually do these unfruitful works of darkness. I, I love the fact that he, he contrasts the fruit or what the Spirit produces, what God produces in our life, with what the works of darkness produce, which is nothing. They're unfruitful. 
In fact, this, this is the thing that we have to get through our heads. The enemy lies to us and says, look, if you'll just dabble in this sin, you're going to feel so much better. You know what the truth is, too? For a short, very short time, we do feel a bit better when we dabble in that sin, don't we? A little bit of stress relief, a little bit of comfort, a little bit of self-justification. I deserve that. But then what happens? If we belong to God, what happens? There's a realization Oh man, this was wrong. There's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And listen, also there often is the consequence that hurts other people. And we think this act bore no fruit at all. It produced nothing good. And this is why God says, listen, don't have anything to do with it. Don't be conformed to these kind of dark habits The way you live needs to be something different. This is exactly what Jesus was getting at in Matthew chapter 5. Listen to this. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill can't be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand that it gives light to all who are in the house. Listen to what he says. Let your light so shine that they may see your good theology. Oh, wait. No, sorry. They may see your good works. And glorify your Father in heaven. When we are producing unfruitful works of darkness, when we are involved in stuff that doesn't produce fruit, you know what we're doing? We're keeping other people from seeing how great God is. That's what we're doing. We're encouraging them that darkness is good. Darkness is normal. You're just as dark as anybody else. But that's not how you are, is it? Now, he says instead, here's what we're supposed to do in verse 11. In 11b, he says, notice, he says, don't have any fellowship with those fruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, the, the word to expose there, it means to reprove or convince through argument or discussion. In other words, it means saying something. Saying something. So, so the picture that Paul's setting for us is, don't do darkness, do light, but explain what light you're doing. I, I've said it like this before, and I stole this from another, another Christian teacher. His name slips me, otherwise I'd say who it was. I can't remember what the guy's name is. Anyway, it's a, he's, a, he's a well-known author here in Great Britain, and one of the things that he says is he says, look, the, uh, the gospel is good news. That's what it, were, it means, good news. Because it's news, or because it's good, it must be demonstrated. Because it's news, it must be explained. That's kind of what Paul's getting at right here. He's saying, you are light, which means you need to demonstrate the light of God that's in the gospel. You are light, which means you need to explain that that light comes from the God of the gospel. Now, here's the thing that's interesting, though. After using this word that clearly means to expose, clearly means to do so verbally, to say this is what this is, after that, he speaks of not speaking. In verse 12, he says, For it's shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in in, in secret. Okay, how does this work? Make sure you say something because it's shameful to to say something. Huh? What, What Paul's saying here, he's saying be careful how you say something. He's saying, make sure that when you're talking about things that need to be exposed, 
when you are talking about unfruitful works of darkness, that you're not being casual or flippant about it. That when you're talking about these things, you're thinking about how you're communicating. Remember, communicating is not just what you say, but what people hear. So he's saying be very careful with how you expose. Be very careful with how you communicate. If you're going to help others see, it's going to happen through wise communication. So so (coughs) Paul puts it this way in the book of Colossians. He says, walk in wisdom toward those who are on the outside. In In Colossians, Paul's talking there about unbelievers, whereas Ephesians can also be talking about believers, but you get the point. He says, walk in wisdom with those who are outside, redeeming the time, in other words, taking advantage of an opportunity, letting letting your speech always be with grace. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, didn't we? About the need to speak grace. Seasoned with salt, salt's a preservative, it stops rot. Seasoned with salt that you may... Notice, I'm sorry, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. In other words, you need particular wisdom about that particular person at that particular time. God, how do I expose this unfruitful works of darkness? See, if we're casual about this, here's one of the two errors that we'll, one of the, maybe we'd say three errors that we'll fall into. One error could be that error that we, we say where someone's talking about you're with your mates, you know, maybe playing a bit of footy or something. Someone, makes a, someone keeps making these crude, sexually loaded remarks. And you don't want to be a prude, so the way you respond, you're like, yeah, it's funny, up high. I didn't say it. I just thought it was funny. That would be the wrong way to communicate, wouldn't it? Another wrong way to communicate would be to, to go, dude, You need to repent right now. How dare you use that language in my presence? Because then you're just being self-righteous, aren't you? A third way that would be wrong would be to say nothing. I never, ever say anything to anyone about what they do. Now, maybe practically the way we need to think about this is think about the kind of relationship you have with the person who's saying that. Do you have the kind of relationship where you've ever talked about anything deep? Because as soon as you start talking about sin and the consequence of sin, right and wrong, morality, these are deep, personal things. So if you don't know the person well, it's probably not the right place to talk to them. Common sense, right? It seems common sense, but sometimes we, we, let's be honest, it's hard to know what to do. So I'm not just saying you just met your work colleague and they're having a conversation with them and and then they use the, they drop the f bomb. You're like, oh, that's you can't, that's bad. Or they mention that they're living with their partner, and you're going, you know what? Actually, that means you're having sex, and you're not. You're supposed to be married if you're having sex. Come on. These are true things, but it doesn't mean that it's right for you to talk to that person about that thing. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, what Paul's talking about here, he's saying, don't be caught, don't be um, careless, but be, or don't be casual, but be careful in your conversations. Be praying for this person. If you see someone who's in, you know, in bondage to these unfruitful works of darkness, you need to say something. Now let me say this. How much more should we be thinking about this when it comes to other believers? If someone is professing to follow Jesus and they're living in a way that's completely opposite of what it means to follow Jesus, 
Do we have an, an, a responsibility to say something? We do. We do. For their sake, but also for the sake of the gospel. Walking in the light, listen, means we're trying to help others see. Now, remember, what did Jesus say about helping others see? He says, before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, what do you need to do? Take the log out of your own eye. The first thing we want to do is when we see somebody walking in unfruitful works of darkness and saying, Lord, how am I susceptible to the same thing? How am I guilty of the same thing? It's amazing how many people I've met who would condemn, who would just be so harsh and quick to judge about a man who's been unfaithful to his wife, but they'll justify their own pornography use. It's both sin, sexual sin, isn't it? will be disgusted by someone with same-sex attraction. But we'll laugh with our mates who are checking out the new girl who started working. That's hypocrisy. That's wrong. Our heart should be, Lord, I, I, I want to be walking in the light and I want to help other people see the light, so help me to do what I'm meant to do and to be willing to say what needs to be said at the right time to say it. Let me, let me say one more thing about this before we move on to our final point, to our final section. We support a group um, as a church. Uh, part of your tithes and offerings go to monthly supporting a group called the Christian Institute. And what the Christian Institute does is it tries to stand up for the rights of Christians in the United Kingdom. And it's a really good group. We really appreciate what they do. They try to stand for righteousness. They try to expose things that are unhealthy for society. It's really good. What they're not trying to do, and I want to make this clear because I think sometimes people think this is what they're trying to do, and sometimes people think this is a good thing, sometimes they think it's a bad thing, but they're not trying to make the United Kingdom Christian or to, to hearken back to a better day when we were all Christians. That's not what they're looking to. There, there's never been a time when when the United Kingdom's been a Christian nation. There's never been a time when, great, when America's been a Christian nation. There's no such thing as a Christian nation. There's only been one nation that has actually been a godly nation, and that's Israel. It didn't last very long. God had to chase them over and over and over again. Now, we can be a nation that professes faith. We can be a nation that, that seeks Christian morals. We can be a nation full of Christian people, but not necessarily a Christian nation. I'm not saying God doesn't, doesn't uh, deal with nations as nations. He does. But we've taken that idea way farther than the, the Bible takes it. Way farther. And in doing so, you know what we've often done? We've often been racist. We've often been guilty of cultural snobbery. We're British or American. You know, there used to be a doctrine, I don't know if you know this, called British American Israelism. You ever heard of that? It's a, it's a completely false doctrine, but it was this idea that somehow historically the British people, and then of course because most of the, the, the original colonists in America were British, Americans, they're, they're the real true Israel of God. That's a false doctrine completely. It's cultural snobbery. So we, I, I'm saying this because what we want to do in exposing is not say our culture is better than your culture. Our morals are better than your morals. No, that's not what we're doing. 
What we're saying, what we're wanting to do and help people see is we're, we're wanting to help people see Jesus is the light who delivers people from darkness, who transforms people from darkness to light. And we want to explain to you how he does that, and we want to demonstrate to you from our lives how he does that. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is a really important thing to get. Otherwise, we get into moralism that doesn't save anybody. God's into transforming individuals, and, and in transforming individuals, he transforms families, and transforming families, he transforms communities, and transforming communities, he transforms cities, and transforming cities, he transforms nations. But it starts with him transforming you and me. Becoming who we are with light. That's how we help other people see. Now, the third main thing I want you to see is walking as children of light. It's not just becoming who you are. It's not just helping other see, people see. It's also learning to live fully awake. I love this because we get, to, we get to verse 13, and verse 13, again, the New King James doesn't say it very well, but listen to how verse 13 is translated in, uh, in the NIV. You might have an NIV, so, but I like the NIV does a better job. I think it's much more accurate. The NIV says, but everything exposed by light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes light. So understand what, what Paul's saying here, okay? He uses kind of economy of words. He kind of keeps a short little pithy saying, but it's hard to translate into English. But what he's basically saying is this. He's saying, listen, light is not just about being exposed. It's, it is about being transformed. God wants to, to transform you so that you can, use, can shine light that transforms other people. That's what he wants to do. God wants us to be a group of people who shine our lights on one another to help one another become more illuminated so that we can go out and illuminate even more people. We want to be those who see as clearly as possible. And here's the reality. Not only do we need, the, the, of course, the gospel of Jesus, first and foremost, that's, he's the cornerstone of our faith, but we also need the input of those he's transformed. We need to shine the light for one another. So, so how does this happen? <coughs> how is it that this, this transforms us? How does light transform us? Well, Listen to this. I found this on a website called How to Clean Stuff. <laughs> now, if you know me well, you know I'm a neat freak. I like things really clean, but I wasn't looking for that reason. I was looking because I had this thing in the back of my mind that sunshine cleans, and I was right. Listen to this. Sunshine does more than just help plants grow. It's very good at killing bacteria, dust mites, and other microscopic critters that we don't like in our homes, as well as removing stubborn odors. Just 30 or 60 minutes is usually long enough for the sun to clean an item, but be sure to rotate the item and to need to get all sides and angles clean. The sun cleans. Light has a cleansing effect. Jesus cleanses us as he shines his light on us. We help each other be cleansed as we shine light on each other. It's not just exposing. This is not about gotcha, I just saw what you did or didn't do. It's about going, brother, sister, let's, let's sign the light of God in that. How could we improve in this? Or how, can, how does God want to transform us in this? Do you see what I'm saying? That's part of living fully awake. You have the lights on, all the lights on. 
But it's interesting here because in <laughs> verse 14, <laughs> Paul is possibly quoting an early Christian hymn that could have been based on the writings of Isaiah the prophet. We don't know for sure, but it's, it seems like that's the way it's, it is. But he's definitely giving kind of a call to respond to Jesus. I, I kind of picture this as like an Easter hymn or uh, a hymn that they used when they, they were celebrating um, the resurrection or calling people to faith. But this is like an invitation to faith. This is almost like an, almost an altar call hymn. And, and I love what he says, <laughs> he says here. He's, he's calling out to people and he's saying, listen, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. He's basically giving the reader an invitation to believe. He's saying to the Ephesian church, whom he's already said to have this great position, he's saying, listen, do you believe that you are who God said you are? He's saying, do you recognize that he's made you who you are so you can help other people see? He's saying, are you actually living fully awake? Believe. <laughs> do you realize in, in saying this, in, in, in giving this exhortation awake, he's saying it's possible for you to wake up. Ever, do you ever wake up in the morning just like totally groggy? I mean, one cup of coffee just ain't going to do it. That's my normal thing. I, I tend to wake up just kind of, oh, I can't focus until I have a first cup of coffee. And then sometimes it's a two-cup morning, you know. It's just, just so groggy you're thinking, I just can't wake up. You ever feel that way? Because spiritually, that's often how we are. We're groggy Christians. We're kind of like unsure and not awake. And I think it's this. I'm not sure. Give me, give me a chance to think. I, I don't know. I, I just can't deal with that right now. I'm just too tired. But this exhortation is an invitation for us to be fully awake, alive, energetic. Ever been wide awake when you knew you needed to sleep? You know, I can't go to sleep. I need to do something. But also notice what he says, arise from the dead. I want you to think about, in giving this exhortation, this is an invitation to resurrection. You can experience the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. You can experience that power in your life to shine the light of Christ. And where does that come from? He says, Christ will give you light. This is an invitation to believe. There's no other way to say this. There's nothing else to add. It leaves us in this place. The section stops right here in this place saying, are you going to trust Jesus? Are, are, you're walking this, to walk us through your life. You're going to have to trust Jesus. Okay, Lord, you can wake me up. You can raise the dead. You can give me light so that I can be light and so that I can shine light and so others can see the light. Are you willing to believe?